cartoon the other day that was a picture of a butterfly on a therapist's couch having a Rorschach test. And with each one, he was kind of saying, like, that's Dad, that's Uncle Bob. <laughs> In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on... Hello and welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name's Amy Donaldson and I'm joined by Hunter Mulcair. Good evening. Hi, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad? Surviving. Mm. So tonight we're going to chat about OCPD, so Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder, a little bit about the characteristics, and then some research about bits and pieces, so things about OCPD in adolescence, a bit about treatment, and then we'll wrap up as usual with some odd things we've come across this week. Yeah, so I thought I'd start about on definitions and just talk about the difference between OCPD, so Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder, versus Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, so OCD. Great. We did find an article where they talked about OCPD is massively underrecognized in the general population. Yeah. One of the impetus for basically doing this topic was you probably would have heard Amy and I on the previous podcast just accuse each other of having OCPD. And m- most psychologists, I think, would actually have trays of OCPD. Yeah. There's and an element of perfectionism. And, yeah, there's a few overlapping characteristics with what it then takes to what, study psychology and have an so, interest and, in it. And then I think also psychology kind of breeds, like, yeah. sort of, like, really reinforces those traits. So, there's, like, this kind of rigidity to rules and... Self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. But I would say, like, sort of, like, like, attention to detail, but attention to detail about things that perhaps are not super critical, like... Yeah. Your reference list needs to be in italics, yeah, not bold for the names of the journals, yeah, right, and you will get marked down for that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so for definitions, I thought I'd describe OCD. I think everyone would have heard of OCD. There's many, many movies. The as good as it gets, I think, with mm. Jack Nicholson is is a show of someone with OCD. Mm. Do you have watched Monk? The TV uh, show? I don't. I watched a bit of it, but I wouldn't say I watched a lot of it. Yeah, he has OCD. Yeah, does a lot of counting, checking, compulsive cleaning, things like that. There was a guy who used to deliver junk mail in the area that I used to live in. Yeah, yeah, and he would tap all the tap all the fence posts. Mm. Yeah, it was time consuming. No, he was really quick. <laughs> so, so OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, is a disorder. Defined by the presence of obsessions, compulsions, or both. And obsessions or compulsions are time-consuming. They take more than an hour a day and cause clinically significant distress or impairment. So obsessions are thoughts or images or impulses. They're recurrent, they're persistent, they're intrusive, they're unwanted, and they're distressing. So they usually have sort of like an element of shame or disgust or yeah. probably fear uh, to them. So, so the common kind of themes might be fears of contamination, repeated doubts so you know have I locked the door fears of contamination being I'll get sick I'll get cancer and I'll die if I don't wash I'll spread germs everywhere and make others sick need to have things in a particular order so you know I need to make sure my hair is combed evenly you know uh, sexual or horrific or blasphemous imagery so imaging of yourself um, molesting a child or image of a loved one dying you might have aggressive or, Im- or inappropriate impulses like the urge to stab someone or push someone in under a train or bizarre thoughts or images so, 
and then there's compulsion. So these are repetitive and ritualized, sort of rule-based behaviors that can be often performed in response to obsessions. They can be overt, so behavior, or they might even be covert, so mental. So, you know, you're counting in your head. Yeah. Or you have to say a prayer in your head or do things like that. So, And probably the important thing to say about the obsessions is that they're inconsistent with the person's sense of self or what they view as appropriate so it's not that they want to harm someone it's that they have these continuing intrusive thoughts that come in about harming people that's right and so what the word that we would use is ego dystonic yeah so they don't doesn't fit with your personality doesn't fit with your ego the compulsions that you do like the the classic ones are washing and cleanings and washing hands in a ritualized manner or long systematic showers checking checking doors switches checking number of time checking for danger, repeating or tapping, ordering things, straightening pens, papers on desk, you know, wasting hours doing this kind of stuff. There's like mental rituals, restaurant seeking. So, you know, someone, I heard about a case where someone, you know, was worried about that sort of a sexual yep. thing and then they would get themselves into all sorts of social difficulty because they would bring up everyone on the football team and say, oh, did I have sex with you? Yeah. That kind of thing. Had to keep on checking if yeah. that was true or not. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. So sort of very kind of extreme in some cases. Yeah. So that's that's kind of a picture of OCD. Yeah. OCPD, and if you are a psychologist, just uh, in the words of our professor, Sunil Barr, just, just check this list off <laughs> for yourself. So the description is that it's a pervasive pattern of preoccupation with orderliness, perfectionism, and mental and interpersonal control. And this is at the expense of a flexibility, openness, and efficiency. And it begins by early childhood and is present in a number of contexts. And so they list in the DSM eight possible symptoms or contexts, I should say. And so you need to have four of these. So just, Amy, you just nod when you, uh, you've got one of these. So I refuse. <laughs> Lucky it's a it's it's an audio format rather than a visual. Um, preoccupation with details, rules, lists, order. It's <laughs> not organizational. Ske- hey, um, you said it was anonymous. <laughs> schedules. There's another Amy in here, so mm. no one wants yeah, that. No uh, schedules to the extent that the major point of the activity is lost. Perfectionism that interferes with task completion. Excessive devotion to work product and productivity to the exclusion of leisure activities and friendships. Overconscientiousness, scrupulous and inflexible about matters of morality, ethics and values. Unable to discard worn out or worthless objects when they have, when they have no sentimental value. So that's interesting because like no sentimental value. So yeah. I've just got lots of things that got a lot of sentimental value. Yeah. Anyway, uh, reluctance to delegate tasks or to work with others unless they submit to exactly his or her way of doing things. Adopts a miserly spending style towards both self and others. And money is viewed as something to be hoarded for future catastrophes. And the last one is shows rigidity and stubbornness. This is a disorder I think that's quite interesting because it's it's quite functional mm-hmm. in many respects. And usually they present to therapy when disaster strikes, you know, or often like say when their spouse dies or something yeah. and then... Something chaotic. Something chaotic. Happens, like, yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. And they can struggle with the relationships, which we'll get into a bit later. Yeah. Yeah, it's not usually the primary reason for seeking treatment. No. I, I certainly have not had it. No, me I, neither. I've had a couple of patients where it was quite clear that they had 
elements, trades of that. Yeah. Uh, or full blown, but you know they were seeking help in context of something else. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, did you uh, tell us about your article? So, the article I found is called "The Role of Experiential Avoidance in Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder Traits" by Wheaton and Pinto in 2016 in Personality Disorders Theory, Research, and Treatment. So, this article talks about um, experiential avoidance, which is a construct that's part of ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and it refers to an unwillingness to experience or remain in contact with unpleasant emotions, thoughts and sensations, plus deliberate attempts to escape from and avoid these experiences. So, it's related to higher levels of depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, PTSD, things like that. So, it's sort of an intolerance of, of unpleasant things so and sort of them. scrambling to avoid them. Yeah. yeah. And they've found that symptoms of these disorders improve when you target experiential avoidance. This study included 624 adults. 571 of them were unscreened community participants. So it was uncertain whether they had any diagnoses or any sort of psychological issues. Mm-hmm. Plus 51 people diagnosed with OCPD. Mm-hmm. So they aimed to look at whether um, experiential avoidance was higher for people with OCPD, as was found in other disorders. So the measures that they used were the Pathological Obsessive Compulsive Personality Scale, the POPs. Oh, please say that fast six <laughs> times. I will not. <laughs> <laughs> It measures five traits, uh, so rigidity, emotional over-control, maladaptive perfectionism, reluctance to delegate, and difficulty with change, plus then an overall score, a POP score. So there was also the acceptance and action questionnaire, version two, which is a measure of experiential avoidance. The DAS-21, which I'm sure we've mentioned before as a measure of depression, anxiety, and stress. Everyone uses it because it's free. Exactly. And then I mean, the, good questionnaire. Good questionnaire. <laughs> sure, that too. <laughs> and then the quality of life, enjoyment and satisfaction questionnaire, the short version, but just a general measure of well-being. So the results showed that the OCPD group were higher in the overall POPs scale. So they were higher in the traits that make up obsessive compulsive personality disorder, as you would expect. Yes. As well, and the subscales, as well as then each of the DAS subscales. So they had more distress mm-hmm. overall than the general population. And uh, they had lower quality of life than the general population. And then they also had significantly higher experiential avoidance than the general population. Yes, I mean, so that first set of results sort of not... Remarkable in any any particular way, but they were high on experiential avoidance. Yeah, exactly. And that remained significant after they controlled for age and DAS, so age and their general distress. Yeah. So it kind of indicates that um, the experiential avoidance had was an independent component of OCPD from distress. Yeah. And so the scores on the measure of experiential avoidance were strongly and significantly correlated with the overall OCPD scale plus each of the subscales. And then the measure of experiential avoidance was also significantly associated with each subscale of the DAS, so each type of distress. Yeah. So it kind of indicates that there's 
um, something about having having that element of your way of coping with things that is related to increased distress. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they they find that uh, in non-personality disorders samples, like so with cancer patients, yeah. there's a lot of literature on coping, yeah. so coping with stress and uh, and what they call quote-unquote emotional emotion-focused coping mechanisms are always associated with higher levels of distress Hmm. so i mean usually as a psychologist i would say avoidance is good short-term bad long-term exactly yeah there's nothing wrong with avoidance yeah it's just don't do it for a long period of time yeah yeah because you never learn then other ways of dealing with the distress or dealing with whatever the yeah the issue is sometimes you need a night off from whatever it is that you're doing but you know, if you have seven nights off, you just get close to that deadline and the problem's still there. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, the problem doesn't shift. It's just. Yeah. Yeah. So. Often magnifies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so because it becomes also scarier to confront the problem because yeah. you've avoided it for a while. And how did you feel when that happened, Amy? Yes. <laughs> Vicious cycle. Vicious cycle. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Two Shrinks Pod moves into personal therapy between the co-hosts. Yes. Anyway, sorry. When the microphones are off. <laughs> Um, so also they found that experiential avoidance and OCPD uh, was negative relate, related to quality of life. So yeah. that each of these constructs were related to reduced quality of life. Yeah. And that when they popped everything into, I think it was a multiple regression, that experiential avoidance accounted for the relationship between OCPD severity and reduced quality of life. Yeah, right. So none of the other factors predicted that relationship. So do you want to say that in English? Yeah. So that means that the impact of OCPD on your quality of life sort of breaks down to be about your level of experiential avoidance. Yeah. So if you've got OCPD or OCPD trays yeah. and you avoid, then you've got worse quality of life. Whereas if you've got those trays but you are less avoidant, then you're happier. Exactly. Which would be an interesting, like clinic working clinically, one of the, and as I'll talk about later in the pod, you would be wanting to make an argument to a patient saying your life will improve if you alter some of these habits that you're in. Mm. And that would be an interesting thing to say, look, we've done research. We can show that people who don't avoid as much in your with your characteristics are happier. Yeah. And it feels like quite a concrete target for treatment yeah. as well. I it's and it seems far more manageable to me than going, okay, you've got to deal with something that sort of, you know, has personality in the title and feels like it's something that's a big looming construct. Yeah. 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 I guess the last bit of results to kind of add in was that they did some regressions and looked at what predicted severity on each of the subscales. Yeah. Again, the experiential avoidance was the only significant predictor of severity in each one of those subscales. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like it predicts severity of OCPD and poorer quality of life. So there you go. Yeah. Kind of neat. Neat. Nice. Makes sense. Yeah. Provides something useful for treatment. Well, potentially. Potentially. Two so, thumbs up. So the article I've got is called Interpersonal Functioning in OCPD by Nicole Kane and colleagues. It's in the Journal of Personality Assessment 2015. So they talk about OCPD being, you know, the core traits of it as a sort of perfectionism, 
this preoccupation with orderliness and detail and control over their environment. And their OCPD people or people with OCPD have uh, quite rightly characterized as rigid and controlling. Mm -hmm. So they have this need for interpersonal control and they say, well, you know, this can lead to hostile and uh, hostile behavior and occasionally explosive outbursts if this control is not met or people don't meet this kind of stuff. They talk about that there's little research in this area of interpersonal functioning in OCPD, but then quite interestingly, they kind of go on and cite like a lot of research in the area. But the main point about it is that the findings about OCPD in interpersonal functioning is kind of mixed. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason I think is that there's a mixture of measures between of interpersonal functioning. Okay. But the other element is that they seem to think that they haven't controlled for OCD in OCPD okay. in the samples. Yeah. So because OCD and OCPD are so uh, have similar elements to it, mm-hmm. right, that there's actually a high level of comorbidity. So yeah. I read one study where I think they said that 45% of patients with OCD mm-hmm. have elevated traits of OCPD. Okay, yeah. So... Really, like if you're listening at home, what that just means is is that uh, people with OCD often have high level, often have elements of OCPD. Yeah. And so then, if you kind of like that anxiety depression crossover, yeah, it'd be a similar thing. Kind of level. Yeah. So if you're then doing a study where you're recruiting people with OCPD, then you're probably going to get patients with OCD, and they actually might be a different cohort or a different yeah. group and then that may muddy your results yeah so in this study they 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 try and account for that so they talk about a couple of ways of measuring interpersonal functioning surprisingly this is actually a little bit dense or i found mm-hmm. it a bit dense so i've tried to i'll try and explain it a little less dense they talk about a couple of different dimensions so there's two different dimensions that they first talk, talk about the dimension going from dominance in interpersonal functioning or interpersonal relationships and being non-assertive. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then a second one being warm mm-hmm. in in interpersonal functioning or interpersonal relationships and cold. Okay. So, like you can imagine that those the dimensions and so and what they this particular scale they plot it sort of x y mm-hmm. and then they draw a circle and then they can divide it up into like eight quadrants. Okay. Well. Well, eight eights, I guess, is what you call it. So, octa somethings. Octants is what they mm. call it. It took me a few goes to actually get that. <laughs> anyway, in terms of like the warmth, cold. Well, in terms of these dimensions, what they talk about is that you're bothered by the opposite of what you are. Yeah. So you're if you're warm, then you're bothered by people who are cold and yeah. interpersonal functioning. Yeah. If you're cold, then you're bothered by warm people right so so cold would be kind of i don't know how you would describe it but i guess distant distant and cold and like sort um, of not yeah. engaging on an emotional level when yeah. you're there yeah versus someone who's sort of warm and bubbly and laughs sort of at welcoming you and, and and tries to connect with you yeah. emotionally how you are they then talk about this this other uh, other couple of dimensions which is systemizing mechanism so this is, people can have be high on this, which is the, the, the drive to analyze variables in a system so that, and understand the rules underlying it with a need to control 
the, the environment. Right? Okay. So this kind of this relates to kind of understanding essentially inanimate objects. Yeah. And they hypothesize that people with OCPD will be high in this kind of tray, this right. element, right? So that you would they would be high in this kind of like this need and desire to analyze. Yeah. The, like the variables in the system and, and they suggest that they would then be low on empathy which is a much more fluid way of understanding hmm. the social uh, the social interactions so okay. em- empathy being I'm going to put myself in someone else's shoes yeah essentially so so, the, so there's a couple of different ways of understanding interpersonal functioning for the study they got three groups a group of OCPD a group of people with OCPD and OCD mm-hmm. Uh, and they got a group of healthy controls, 25 in each. Mm-hmm. They screened 150 people with OCPD and 50 for healthy controls, selected 25 for each group. They did a SCID, which is a structured clinical interview for, for DSM, so which is a long interview. They did inventory of interpersonal problems, circumplex, interpersonal sensitivity, circumplex, interpersonal reg- relativity in the index, and systemizing quotient scale short version as all the measures of interpersonal functioning. And did they control for whether people were dog people or cat people? <laughs> <laughs> Just doing a callback to episode two? It could be episode two. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they, there was no mention of dog people, cat people. I did find, as an aside, a, a article about cancer patients exercise levels and dog dog versus cat ownership mm, I think. new topic, new topic. <laughs> in, in, sorry no, for the sidetrack anyway. just her dominance and thought dog people <laughs> that's it so so the results there's a few of them i'll try and go through them quickly so they found that participants with ocpd reported hostile dominant interpersonal problems which is consistent with previous some previous research and it wasn't consistent with other research that didn't screen for comorbid OCD like they did. Okay. Okay. So the idea being that people with OCPD are focused on kind of controlling the environment. Yeah. And. And so when that control goes awry. Yeah. Then there's the, frustration. Yeah. Because they don't have the flexibility. Yeah. To deal with it. So yeah. if you're inflexible, then frequently you'll you'll be aggressive and hostile. Yeah. Right. So, you know, they report being over-controlling, vindictive and cold in their interpersonal relationships Mm -hmm. versus, say, the OCPD and OCD group. So that's the group that had both. Yeah. And they were sort of non-assertive in their interpersonal problems and high in interpersonal distress. Hmm. So other research has shown disorders with marked anxiety like OCD associated with more avoidance and being non-assertive in interpersonal problems. Hmm. So the second set of results, they talk about this idea about warmth and cold, yep. coldness, warmth, coldness. And so they basically, the findings showed that interpersonal warmth is an irritant to those with OCPD, regardless of whether they had OCD or not. Right? Okay. So they're controlling and cold in their relationships. So they find anyone who's warm and, I guess, relaxed, yeah. irritating, yeah. right? Because it wouldn't fit with their way that they interact with the world, the structured way yeah. in which they interact with the world. Yeah, I was thinking about the predictability of other people. If they're sort of warm and flexible, yeah. then they're not going to follow the rules. No, yeah. no. And then that's going to drive them insane. Yeah. Which is good, which is really interesting. Like if that's someone you know, or if that's 
uh, or if you're working with a partner, yeah. So, so someone who's married to someone or is in a relationship with someone who's got OCPD, mm. some teach them about. I mean, they probably would know it anyway. Yeah. You know, on some level. Yeah. But then also, like you as a therapist working with, uh, and that, and that's what they start. They talk about sort of towards the end. Yeah, because you immediately start thinking about that sort of the empathy and kind of depending on what perspective you come from psychologically that sort of you know positive regard <laughs> for your clients whether that actually would be a irritating pro- and not conducive to treatment yeah that, well that, that they talk about that and they sort of say well you know actually that could be a real problem mm. so the typical way in which you work as a therapist yeah. might actually drive that person out of therapy yeah and i reckon i've certainly had one case where the approach that i took uh for you know someone who's being treated for cancer mm. which works in the majority of cases uh completely like it just didn't work and yeah. i and reading this paper made me think i wonder whether mm. that was part of the problem so, so perhaps more of a sort of clinical structured style would be more yeah. helpful yeah with those clients. being quite directive yeah it's just like okay we're going to do this and we do this and we're going to do this yeah uh that kind of thing mm. and, and maybe not messing around with those fuzzy emotions initially. so And perhaps that's part of why they don't tend to seek out treatment mm-hmm. in that psychology is portrayed as the a bit of the warm fuzzy. Yeah, or that perhaps that they don't find relief when they speak to someone. Mm, yeah. And so, because I think you do get some people coming into therapy because they've chatted to their doctor. Yeah. And like the GP, for example, and then they felt better mm. and then the GP said, look, you need to go and do this more. Yeah. Or, you know, or another professional or something, whereas mm. OCPD wouldn't, pretend, like according to this, wouldn't actually have that. Have that relief. Mm. So the last set of results were about empathy and then OCPD patients plus or minus OCD had, they had low levels of perspective taking compared with the healthy control group. Mm-hmm. So they had difficulty spontaneously taking the viewpoint of others. So this fits in yep. with them being rigid and stubborn. But what's interesting is there are no differences on empathetic concern with healthy controls. So okay. unlike, say, you know, when we're talking about psychopathy yeah. in a couple of pods ago, the OCPD patients had sympathy for unfort- people in unfortunate circumstances. It's just that they're limited in displaying or having the appropriate response in a social situation. Mm. So... You, know, you could sort of say, okay, well, we could probably train them up there. Yeah. If that kind of makes sense. They expected OCPD to be high on systemizing. Like I was talking about before, this is a way of understanding the, the, and predicting the world, mm-hmm. law, laws governing what's going on. But they didn't seem to find that that was the case. Hmm. So the OCPD in this group was not higher than the healthy controls. But they did find that the male OCPDs were higher on it than the female OCPDs. Okay. So their, their conclusion was more research is needed. Mm-hmm. Clinically, uh, along the lines of what we were just talking about before, they suggested you know targeting the personal hostility and dominance associated with OCPD. So there's some skills training to promote emotional awareness and being flexible in yeah. these situations, increasing per- perspective taking and... Uh, their ability to respond to emotions in a more fluid way. Mm-hmm. So reducing intellectualization. So that's when you're intellectualizing your emotions mm-hmm. and thinking about like rather than actually just feeling them. Yeah. So reducing that. And 
Yeah, and then talking about, I guess, you know, suggesting that OCPD patients could become quite frustrated and irritated and angry with a therapist because a therapist is likely to be, in, you know, interpersonally warm. Yeah. And so you would probably, you know, heads up would be wanting to not do that. And I guess what that makes me think of as well is that sort of, um, in terms of those areas being a target for treatment, that that could be helpful both in their relationships but then also reducing the amount of times that they have sort of frustrations and outbursts from not being able to handle yeah. flexibility. So yeah. Double-pronged. Yeah, and you could, you could, you could potentially sell, sell it to someone and say, look, you get frustrated, that causes you more problems, yeah. but also you find that unpleasant. We can give you some rules. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you could kind of like play into their OCPD a little bit so we can give yeah. you some rules. So in these situations, this is the way in which you could do it. So yeah. you could probably play into that a little bit. Yeah, provide some structure. Some structure. Yep, to the chaos. They would love it. Mm. <laughs> Very good. So the second article I found was about adolescence and the development of um, OCPD traits. So it's called Understanding Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder in Adolescence, a Dimensional Personality Perspective by Alterman and colleagues in 2010 in the Journal of Psychopathology Behavioural Assessment. So the idea was to understand personality precursors to OCPD. So they got 274 adolescents and their mothers, and the adolescents were aged between 12 and 18 years, and they got them to complete a range of measures. Uh, They got them to do the Neo Personality Inventory, so that's a measure of the five factors of personality. They also did an assessment of DSM-4 personality disorders questionnaire, which measures both the traits of OCPD and then distress and impairment. Uh, The mothers were the primary informants on personality pathology. They did the dimensional assessment of personality pathology and the dimensional personality symptom item pool for personality disorder symptoms in childhood and adolescence. So all of these measures were combined they did a whole bunch of individual correlations which as you can imagine with all the different scales of of those tests was absolutely enormous so do you going to go through each and every one absolutely yep. Yep. Good. Um, at least the correlations and the significance and <laughs> we'll be here for the next six hours <laughs> um no so i'll go through a few of the core findings yeah. and then talk about a, a regression that was conducted Uh, So in terms of the individual correlations, they found a positive association between OCPD symptoms and neuroticism and then a negative association with extroversion, agreeableness and openness. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And matches what we were just talking about. The regression with maternal ratings of OCPD uh, found that conscientiousness and neuroticism were predictive of OCPD. And that the compulsivity factor of one of the personality pathology measures was predictive of OCPD. And uh, the compulsivity factor of the other um, (laughs) measure was also predictive. So uh, essentially, it sort of fits in with what we were talking about before. There's kind of... And feeds into that hypothesis that it sort of develops over time. I think you mentioned at the start of sort of starting in childhood. Yeah. And the conscientiousness, I was just trying to think why that would be, but people with OCPD have like like high moral standards. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And high and that attention to detail and into getting things right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
just a quick little study. Oh, that was quick. It was very quick. But I think for me it was interesting in terms of working with young people where you don't typically diagnose personality disorders prior to 18. Yeah. And so, but sometimes you see some traits coming through and it kind of tweaks things in your head where you might not think that they meet the criteria for that, but sometimes you apply similar ways of working. Yeah. So, for example, with thinking young people who have sort of traits that are similar to borderline personality disorder that I've worked with of kind of, you know, setting quite firm boundaries and creating a sort of secure attached environment, for example, mm. and kind of thinking how this would apply to that work. Yeah. So the article I wanted to talk about is called Schema Therapy for Cluster C Personality Disorders. It's in the Wiley Blackwell Handbook of Schema Therapy, mm-hmm. uh, Theory, Research and Practice. So the chapter is, or the article is by Arnold Arntz, and it's a 2012. Personality disorders are divided up into three clusters, cluster A, cluster B and cluster C. Um, typically, psychologists, psychiatrists refer to those clusters as A, MAD, B, bad, C, sad, <laughs> uh, which is sort of a bit of black humour. But... The cluster C personality disorders uh, have avoidant personality disorder, dependent personality disorder, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So anxiety dominates the functions of the people with these in cluster C, and avoidance or control is safety strategy that can be difficult to break through and it's kind of common within all of these personality disorders. Yeah. So this article talks about a theoretical understanding of OCPD and then talks about how you might treat it. Now, I think CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, has been sort of more widely investigated as a treatment mm. for OCPD. Uh, schema therapy is a, something that I'm kind of very interested in and sort of an extension of cognitive behavioral therapy. They talk about schema modes, which is a person's mental state at a particular point in terms of emotion, cognition, and behavior. And this is useful for both patients and therapists to understand and to think about. So therapeutically, what you would do is you, as a therapist, you would start to pick up on when people are in different modes of acting and and being. Mm. And then you would want to educate the patient about these different modes that might apply to them, have a discussion to them about that, and then help them understand when they are outside of the therapy room when there are in those and then you would look at ways and you know what are the unhelpful elements of those schema modes yeah at those particular time and then try and help them change that it's yeah. sort of a, a simple quite a simple way of understanding yeah. what you would do and in schema therapy and schema mode therapy is quite uh, an easy it's very complicated but also quite an easy to understand therapy, I would mm. have thought. And, and that's sort of certainly the way I've kind of come across it. So they, I'll go into that in a sec. So, that, I mean, they talk about OCPD being characterized by, you know, this obsessive compulsive devotion to productivity at expense of these other areas of life, social relationships, all these kinds of things we've been talking about, extreme standards, you know, this conviction that others do lousy jobs and are incapable of doing it the way it should be done and should being a fairly, fairly key word. Emotions are disregarded. They, they're not seen as having any value. They view themselves as superior. 
uh, in terms of conscientiousness, like we were just talking about, some morality, view others as being lazy and inferior. So there's a lot of judgment there, mm. as you can sort of see. And this could be quite implicit into someone so that they might not actually be that interest, be able to be that introspective. Yep. They might actually not realize that the way in which they view the world and the way in which they view others is actually different, right? They would just kind of view that this is actually, that this is the reality of the world. Yeah. And so that would prove to be challenging in therapy because, mm. you, you know, if you are aware that your opinions are different, then it's much easier to then change it. Yeah. I mean, there's some genetic and biological backgrounds to OCPD, but also cold and strict parenting with high standards in the areas of achievement is known to be important. You know, they might have had to control their emotions or been taught that they were useless. You know, they often would be given too much responsibility as a child. So they give an example of someone who at the age of 12 had to run her parents' farm yeah. after her father had died. Yeah. And her mother was, you know, overcome with depression and grief. Yeah. And so you can imagine a 12-year-old doing something like that, you know, no time for emotions yeah. and having to achieve things in a very high standard mm-hmm. could, you know, cement a whole lot of, whole lot of these traits. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of functional. Yeah. It, it definitely functional. Mm. I mean, and I would view a lot of these, a lot of psychological problems that people present with as actually having a functional basis. Yeah. Usually they worked in the beginning. Yes. The whatever the strategy or coping mechanism or things. And then over time it sort of generalized and doesn't apply to every situation. Yeah. And a fundamental tenet of schema therapy is actually this was helpful for you yeah. at a particular time. Yeah, that's what I quite like about it. It's got a sort of um validating and accepting kind of element to it. Yeah. Yeah. While still acknowledging that it's not helping now. What I like about it is it's got this evolutionary feel to it. Mm. It's like the the reasons this developed was because there was these pressures. Yeah. And so that's why you've kept it. Yeah. And 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 then sort of takes takes on this whole kind of thing. Well, okay, you've it, you've evolved beyond that mm-hmm. and now that thing that you had is actually is 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 hindering you. Yeah. So let's change it. So they talk about a couple of different modes that uh prominent in the in, in people with OCPD. So they talk about the perfectionistic over controller mode. Mm-hmm. So this is when a person is using excessive control and perfectionism as a strategy to avoid making mistakes and or feeling guilty when things go wrong. Mm-hmm. And so people would kind of get into that mode. Then there's this demanding parent mode. So there's this internalization of high demands. So this is this internalization of demands that their parents or caretakers would have given to them about productivity, perfectionism, social status, moral issues. So things you should do. Things you should do. And mm-hmm. many, this, this is not unique to OCPD. No. Um, and pretty much everyone has an element of this demanding parent in them. And usually it's signified by feeling shoulds. Yeah. Right? So, and so not meeting this this demand would lead you to feeling bad or feeling ashamed, mm-hmm. right? And so therapy would be about learning how to counter that demanding parent mode. There's a self-aggrandizer mode, which is that plays to this kind of superiority element. Mm-hmm. So to compensate for inner feelings of being inferior or inadequate or having doubts or something. The vulnerable child mode, so everyone has a vulnerable child. And so this is any, any state when a person feels like a little vulnerable 
child, little Hunter, little Amy, mm-hmm. little, little whoever, right? The aim of schema therapy is always to build up someone's healthy adult mode. So this is a state where people take uh, care of themselves, him or herself, and of others in a healthy and mature way. So you wouldn't be taking care of others beyond what really should be expected. Yeah. And you're taking care of yourself in a healthy way rather than an unhealthy way, Mm -hmm. right? So this is balance between, you know, your own needs and others' needs and those of other people. So those are the kind of the the core modes that you'd be thinking about. It's a very prominent is this perfectionistic over-controller mode. It's a survival strategy by people with OCPD. You know, perfectionism, over-control. It's a direct response to the demands Mm -hmm. of the demanding parent mode which represents, again, like these high demands of the, the parent, the, the child experience, right? Yeah. And then this self-aggrandizing mode, you know, you feel superior to others, you know, I know how to do the job, hmm. you know, others do it sloppily. perfectly. And that, and, 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 and that you would suggest is actually probably come about because I actually do probably do things mm. more often than not better than other people. Yeah, those three things kind of feed into another. Yes, that's exactly yeah. right. So, yeah. you know, and believing others are careless and, and irresponsible. They talk about OCPD being associated with emotional abuse in childhood, but usually these patients deny it or cannot access this vulnerable child mode. It's interesting because when I was doing some other reading, I found an article about attachment and OCPD. And what I found fit with that in terms of that um, they had higher levels of fearful attachment. So that sort of disorganized, you know, approach then avoid yeah, and so patterns, you would then, so which then, you would find with emotional, yeah, abuse. and then you would find some relief by being able to control your world. Yeah, exactly. So, and then you would double down on it essentially. Yeah. So, how do you treat this? Yeah. So they talk about a a protocol that they are investigating. Mm-hmm. I haven't actually, I didn't actually get time to look at whether, what the subsequent results are. It's a short fifty session protocol. Wow. Yep. <laughs> so that's uh, so. It's Weekly not, for a year? Uh, I think I think it's probably I think it's like forty in a year, and then they do ten booster sessions in okay. the following year. So this is I mean this is the gets back to treatment of personality disorders, which is treating personality disorders are hard. Mm-hmm. So you have to do a lot of work because long term work. Well, because it's someone's personality, you don't you can, yeah. it, and even then you're not changing someone's personality. Mm-hmm. You're kind of like smoothing the edges off it. Yeah, supplementing the coping strategies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll still be controlling and rigid yeah. they'll just be less so yeah they'll be able to recognize it and adapt a little bit yeah yeah, yeah you'd hope so so see so the aim really i mean you 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 might be you might have guessed it already but the aim that this approach will tell you is like getting rid of this demanding parent mode mm-hmm. so reducing someone's high standards challenging it and so you would use that image rescripting mm-hmm. was that is, something you use uh just as an aside rescripting you're it depends doing all on sort how you of chair stuff. I definitely do imagery stuff where you, yeah, yeah, I would. So mm. imagery scripting would be to get someone to activate an emotional memory recently, yeah. and then get them to hold on to the emotion. You wipe the the current image from their head and say, "I want you," like as in, say, "I want you to wipe that out." Hold on to the current emotion though, and think about. A time when you felt this way mm. as a young person, yeah. So like, re- like under back. under ten, yeah. Right, like, and then it's very powerful. 
and then you get them to describe what's going on in that image and then you as a therapist you say i want you to imagine that i'm in that image yeah right and then you would then counter what's going on so Someone might be or saying, or you can get them as a healthy adult to go into the. Yeah. So image. I mean, so yeah. what? So what? The way I was taught was that what you would do is you, the first couple of times you would do it, you would you would do it, and you would show them how to do it. Yeah. And then, and then later on, you get them to healthy. So, so yeah. what you would do is you would say, I want you to imagine that I'm in the image, and then I would, I would say, I want you to imagine that I am saying this to your parent, yeah. who's who's doing the mean thing to yeah. you and there's ways in which you go about this and it's very very powerful mm. uh it's yeah so like as and therapists are often very timid to do mm. that in therapy because it seems a bit difficult but the results the impact is amazing it, yeah it, it yeah. The, the after doing it with one or two clients i became it's just like wow this is amazing yeah so and there's other ways of doing that that less less intrusive mm. Uh, just classic CBT kind of stuff, you know, using flashcards and they and also schema therapy talks about uh, limited reparenting. Mm. So, which is this, that the therapist role models how a healthy adult sh- should have responded or, you know, responds to a patient in a way that their parents should have responded. Yeah. So, you sort of become that sort of secure parent kind of thing, responding yep. with boundaries, but with warmth. With warmth. Perhaps yeah. more so than, say, straight CBT yeah, would definitely. do or teach you. The other goal is just that they ask the patient to reduce perfectionistic over-control um, or over the over-controller mode. So this is behaviourally. So allowing someone to make mistakes mm-hmm. or telling them, okay, uh, you, you've got to set a shorter period of time to get a job done. Yeah. So not to work harder. It's just actually say, okay, you just need to edit that podcast yeah. <laughs> in an hour, not six hours, for example. I don't know where that would come from. No, I don't know either. Um, you'd explain for <laughs> – explain uh, – I'm just going to experientially avoid. the yeah. um, Explain we'll and later. push for importance of emotions. So this is kind of like they shut off from their emotions, so get them to – understand that they're okay to have, yeah. they're safe, actually, they're really good to have and teaching them to take care of that vulnerable child mode, right? So build up the healthy adult mode so they can, so they, so when they're feeling vulnerable to go, okay, well, how would, how would my therapist tell me to act? And, yeah. then, and then over time it's like, how would, how would, how should I act? Yeah. That kind of thing. So this therapy takes about five or six sessions to conceptualize mm-hmm. the ins and outs of each person. Yeah. Right, and then they talk about a f- focus on a current focus and a childhood focus, and sort of like yeah, fifteen to nineteen sessions of of each of those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I liked it because a I like skin therapy, but conceptually it made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you imagine that along along those lines, it should make some difference, but mm. you know yeah. you wouldn't actually need to study it. Yeah, nice. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be back soon. You're listening to Two Shrinks Pot. Experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things. It's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everything. Thank you for listening to us. If you like what you're hearing, please rate us on iTunes or send us delightful emails at twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. But mainly just rate us. That would be... 
That would be the most appropriate. Or you could review us if you've got time. You could do both. You could do both. That's asking a lot. <laughs> uh, and you can also, if you're interested in any of the articles in this podcast or in previous podcasts, you can always look at our website, twoshootspod.com, and uh, we post links to the articles there. If you are enjoying the show, please, and uh, you think others would enjoy the show, please tell other people about it because we're trying to increase our listenership. And hello to everyone listening overseas, in the United States. Mm, Japan, Norway. And uh, Denmark. Mm. Actually, I feel, I feel bad about just singling out single countries. <laughs> All the countries. <laughs> All the countries. In the All world. the countries are wonderful. That was such an opening for you to pick on me and you just missed it. I know. <laughs> All right, thank you for listening. We're going to get back to it. Okay. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects. And we're back. This portion of the show, we talk about an interesting article or two that we've stumbled across during the week. Hunter, what do you have? Uh, look, I'm going to tip my hat to my mother-in-law who uh, took my wife to My Fair Lady this mm-hmm. week. And this is uh, Living Learning Theory Through My Fair Lady. Mm. And this is by Holly Gleesner. And it was in the British Journal of Educational Technology in 2005. The abstract goes something like this. In My Fair Lady, the play, the renowned linguistics professor, Henry Higgins, attempts to instruct the common flower vendor, Eliza Doolittle, in proper English etiquette and speech. Set in the 1910s, but written in the heyday of behaviorism, the play reflects the idea that behavioral change is evidence of learning. As we analyse Professor Hickland's applied theory of learning and instruction, we find unique examples of behaviourism, cognitivism and constructivism at work in the instructional strategies and activities in the good professor's interpretations of Miss Doolittle's actions and attitudes towards learning. Wow. I have never thought that much about My Fair Lady. Look, it's, it's an impressive piece of scholarship. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting because it kind of goes through a couple of different uh, learning theories. Yep. Truth be told, I only knew a few of them. <laughs> the later ones, I'm like, no, no, I I might have fell asleep in that lecture. <laughs> Starts off, I, I won't go through all of it, but you know, practice makes perfect, serves the day and night behavioral drill that Eliza must follow. Repeating her vows until she loses that dreaded accent consumes the professor. Listen to me speak and watch my mouth, he often says to her, and even places marbles in her mouth and requires her to recite them from a book, which which is a really, really funny scene until you yeah. think about, because she swallows one of the marbles. Yeah, yeah. That's... And then you think about like the state of medicine at that time. Yeah, and yeah I, it's horrific. Like, so like, I saw that laugh and thought, oh my God, they didn't have any, like, did they even have x-rays? Anyway, so through these instructional strategies, <laughs> the importance of observable behavior in stimulus and response shows Higgins to using verbal reinforcement. It further uses chocolate and strawberry biscuits to condition and improve response from Eliza, associating learning with a particular stimuli and correct responses with emphasis on incentives and habits. So Higgins engages in a near-behaviorist response, demonstrating the proper way to hold a teacup and a saucer. And then they kind of note that you know it's akin to a modern movie, Pretty Woman, with the street worker Julie Roberts work trying extremely hard to walk and talk like a lady. The reference is Skinner, who is a mm. behaviorist. Rat dude. Rat dude. So when she finally pronounces the rhyme correctly, the rain in Spain stays mainly in the plane. Nice. Higgins asks her to recite it again and again and again. But so unlike Skinner, he's not using intermittent reinforcement. No. He's incessant. So Foolish. The, the discriminant stimulus for Eliza lies in pleasing Higgins, fueling the appropriate response and reinforcing the cycle. It kind of goes on. I'm, I'm not sure how much more I really want to go into it, but it's it, look. 
if I feel you, like you've captured the essence. Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, yeah. if, if you, uh, I mean, they talk about Bandura. Hmm. Uh, they talk about Vygotsky, hmm. Piaget. Uh, if, if you are a first-year psychology student, read this article. Yeah. And, and like, reference it in an essay that yeah. you are doing. H1, straight yeah. up. Um, so <laughs> Excellent tip. Yeah. I mean, see, I don't, I don't, do you even know Vygotsky? I don't know. I did a little bit of Constructivism. Yeah. Uh, but it was very short. It was sort of, you know, a 15 minute of a you know, three hour lecture. Maybe I should just look up a Wikipedia of that. Yeah. That would be, yeah. that'd be helpful. Mm. Just like, oh God, I don't know. Look, it was, it was, it was funny, funnier finding it than reading it, but I think it was. Um, enjoyable. It was enjoyable, nevertheless. And Excellent. I do like My Fair Lady as a. That's a thing. Although, I think it might have dated a bit. I'd say so. The, uh, I wish she was more like a man, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have gone down that well. Mm, no. With the mm, audience. No, probably not. But I, I think, I like Higgins. He's a lovable, yeah. what did you say, a rogue? Raconteur, maybe? Yeah. Raconteur. Yeah. yeah. That's, I, that's, I don't even know how you found that, but great. <laughs> uh, walking to pick up my kids, Google Scholar, <laughs> my fair lady. That's Nice. So what have you got for us? So I've been thinking about what makes someone a over-the-top obsessed fan of yep. something. Yep. Yep. So I found an article called... <laughs> Don't look at me as you say that. <laughs> it's nothing to do with you. <laughs> I found an article called I'm Your Number One Fan, A Clinical Look at Celebrity Worship Neuro. by Sanson and Sanson, 2014, in Innovations in Clinical Neuroscience. So, this is a review article that talks about celebrity worship as a continuum from admiration to psychopathological. And so, it describes a whole bunch of individual characteristics. Is, is this just like a leftover um, article from our stalking pod last week? It kind of, it kind of is. Yeah. And what was interesting to me was that when I had a look at some of the scales that they reviewed... Because I kind of thought, well, admiration is quite a broad It's concept. not very well. Yeah, it's not, not singular. Yeah. yeah, but the intensity of the items on the scales, they were, they were really intense. Yeah. They were sort of things like feeling like if your celebrity of choice has an achievement, that it's your achievement. Wow. Or experiencing intense grief when they lose a you know football game or mm. feeling like you're destined to be together like very intense anyway <laughs> so they spoke about how people view celebrity worshippers as foolish persistent irresponsible submissive and less honest than other people uh, they found that they spoke about articles where at sort of moderate levels of celebrity worship it was related to poorer body image for teenagers uh, that it's related to cosmetic surgery acceptance and use. Really? Yeah, that it's negatively related to religiosity. So you're not religious, but you believe in a, in a in celebrity? In a celebrity god. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Low levels of it were related to sensation seeking and cognitive rigidity. Yeah. Medium levels to identity diffusion. Yeah. And high levels to poor interpersonal boundaries. Yeah. And it's related to narcissism. So all so of these different, really, yeah, wow, yeah, and then it talked about clinical issues. So that at moderate levels, it's related to fantasy proneness. Yeah, so, yeah, sort of dreaming about those things, and at high levels, both to fantasy proneness and dissociation. 
Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and then they also spoke about a bit of the stalking thing of sort of making contact with celebrities and that that was related to dissociation and uh, sexual thoughts and feelings about um, a celebrity. It was related to absorption and stalking behaviour, so being completely fixated. And in the last kind of chunk of things they talked about, they listed off a whole bunch of clinical things that it's related to. So positively related to addiction, criminality, compulsive buying, materialism, depression, anxiety, somatic symptoms, social dysfunction, poorer overall mental health and poorer life satisfaction. Wow. Yeah. All from being besotted with a celebrity. Well, I mean, well, I wouldn't say it's cause and effect. Not cause and effect, no. (laughs) But (laughs) interesting. Yeah, there's so many ways you could look at that. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, so you would be addiction problem and you're unhappy and then you're prone to fantasy and you kind of become obsessed and... and That sort of single-minded... Single-minded thing about, like, this person is... Focus. This person is amazing, all or nothing kind of thing. Yeah. And then that would explain why kind of, like, low-grade celebrities would get it. Like, so, I mean, say perhaps like a judge on a talent show... Yeah. ...who maybe has a music career but not a great one, yeah. you know, would then get these sort of obsessional fans about them, that kind of thing. Yeah, because it's interesting, I was trying to think of like whether I've ever had like celebrity, it's not celebrity crushes, it's celebrity. No. And that was the thing when I first started reading it, I thought, well, maybe I've had sort of like low, le- like the admiration end of things. But yeah. then when I actually looked at these scales at what admiration involved, it was it was sort of being besotted with someone to what I viewed as quite an intense yeah. See, so yeah, I, I, would, I definitely not have that. Like, I, the, no. the only thing I can think of is like a couple of musicians that I thought like I really got yeah. what they were talking about. Yeah. They really spoke to me. Yeah. Now, but that's. But you didn't think you were meant to be with them. No. Or that there was any. <laughs> if you've got too much neuroses. Like, yeah. I reckon I'd speak to a famous person and just be like, I've got nothing to say to you. I would say, I've got, like, I can't. Yeah. I can't do it. Like, like, as in, I'd just be like, I. My new race is about like yep. whether I'm inter- whether I'm interesting at all. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just come up. really fascinating. So, because I kind of I did a bit of looking at kind of finding out what makes like whether there are personality traits or kind of yeah histories that lead to this sort of thing or are correlated with it. But mm. this was there was very few pieces of research about it. I but, wonder if there would yeah. also be different like sports stars versus. Mm. Uh, you know, TV celebrities, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So there you go. Little you snapshot of celebrity worship. Do you have celebrity worship? No. And I thought that there might be a touch of it, but there's really not. It's just, <laughs> I'm just not cutting it. Like a sort of, you know, yeah, celebrity crush just you, doesn't do it. You, you're too happy. I just, I, tr- I try and be obsessional. I cut, cut the pictures out of yeah. TV week, but I just, I just can't yeah. do it. I just haven't made the full size paper mache model yet. <laughs> I'll get there. <laughs> well, uh, I think that we might leave that there. Sounds good to me. Um, thanks for listening. So next week we are going to be doing a special for our 10th episode on... Well, 10 things we came across during the week. That's it. So... We're going as rogue as possible. As rogue as possible to celebrate. <laughs> within the format. <laughs> within the format that we've rigidly applied. Yes. OCPD. And we'll stick to. Stick to. And we'll get back to it. Yeah. See you next time. Bye. Bye.